Welcome to Witchcraft Made Science, a future-based podcast where we'll be discussing the witch as an age-old stereotype as well as a new feminist icon, making space for the spiritual, the scientific and the skeptical aspects of witchcraft, all seen from an artistic lens. In this podcast, we'll talk to a great selection of artists about how they define witchcraft, how the figure of the witch comes forward in their work, and sometimes even how magic and science can be intertwined. This episode, we will talk to Alexandra Newman. Welcome, Alexandra. We're so happy I want to talk to us about for this podcast, Witchcraft Made Science. First, could you introduce yourself and your work? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me here. The topic that you're bringing up is really important to my work, so I'm just excited that I get to talk about my practice in relation to it and the dialogue that you're creating. So my work, it, it spans across a lot of different mediums. So I work in video installation, performance, writing, collage, and also most recently kind of expands into experimental pedagogy or just group facilitation to explore a concept that I might be working through in my work. So as I evolve with my practice, I kind of see my practice as like a witch's cauldron of a way that I can throw in research, creativity, and just like group ritual and divination into one pot and then see what comes out. So sometimes it's an artwork or sometimes it's a class or sometimes it's like a, a personal divination practice. So some examples, I guess, of these things blurring into one another are the project we're going to talk about a lot today, which is this tarot deck. So it started first as a collage process, but then it became like a critical theory text too. And then once that was like a finished project, I wanted to activate it through performance, through giving card readings. And then that performance turned into almost like a trade because now <laughs> I give tarot readings like in many different settings. Like So always my creative process is spilling over into other ways of being in the world. Conceptually, my art mostly has to do with the idea of reframing human beings as ecological processes. So we tend to think of ourselves as these separate individuals that are like on top of the earth. But what would it mean to really see ourselves as made of earth? And there's a lot of different creation myths that specifically speak of humans as made of mud. So how might seeing ourselves as part of this ever-changing earthly process of material reconfigurations, like how might that allow us to live in better relation with the earth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you already said it. We'll be discussing one work uh, in particular, which is Radical Becoming in the Ongoing Now, which you developed in 2021. And it's a deck of cards, like you said, a tarot-inspired deck of cards. Could you explain what you mean with this title, Radical Becoming in the Ongoing Now? Yeah, so I will acknowledge that the title is kind of a mouthful, <laughs> but lately I've been seeing my titles almost like spells. So I have another work called Mother Goddess Creature Complex, and I'm working on another thing now called um, Semen Retention for a Better Tomorrow. So <laughs> it's all these kinds of vague, long sentences that I want to activate a certain kind of way of thinking or feeling. But the idea of a radical becoming is my speculative alternative to the identity of human being. So while we might think that human being is kind of a neutral or objective category, I think that a lot of us still live by a concept of a human being that was defined by maybe like a Eurocentric trajectory of looking at that. Like if we even see a taxonomy of where the human stands within a specific way of knowing, then we still see ourselves as like 
mankind as separate from nature, as, you know, our minds are separate from our bodies or us as living beings are separate from the animal kingdom. So I feel like this neutral or objective category contains with it all these implicit ways of seeing ourselves as separate from the earth. And then the idea of a radical becoming is like an alternative identity. It's something that's defined by continuous transformation. So, and that's pretty much true on even just like a material level. We're always, all of our cells are always transforming. We're always taking in things from the environment and extruding them out. So we're, we're always in a process of fluctuation with our ecologies. So what would it mean to, to identify as a process rather than that static concept? And then the ongoing now part is kind of touching into the more mystical level. So just like any self-help book will say, you have to drop into the now moment. I really do you know, want to emphasize that in every moment, like it's always now, now is the only time. And then that in every now moment, there's a possibility of touching into a kind of alien other space where you're no longer defined by your identity or this narrative of who you are, but you can just breathe with yourself and feel yourself as connected to all things. Yeah, and in the explanation of how to use the, the cards, you say this deck is not meant to predict the future or determine your fate. Instead, this deck attempts to mobilize the energy of personal inquiries towards reshuffling the larger knowledges and systems that sustain them, which are quite big words like knowledge and system. Could you explain what you mean with this? Yeah, so I continuously experience this when I'm giving readings is people come and they're so ready to just ask like, what's going to happen to me next year? Or what's going to happen with my job interview next week? And I think there's this long association between divination and like predicting the future, but that automatically strips the agency of that person to have like power over their fate. So I like to think of the tarot or card reading practice as more of an analytical tool. And that is not really about the unknown that's in the future. It's more about the unknown of the present moment. So what are the unconscious influences that are determining the outcome of this situation? And then I ask people to phrase their questions in a way that gives them agency over the outcome. Like, how can I make this situation something, something? So they really have to think about their own role and how that problem is existing in the present moment. The other part about the systems and knowledge is basically I'm, I'm trying to make the point like that the personal is political. So when someone comes with a really tight knot of a question or problem that's bothering them, I want to open up that knot and take that energy that's contributing to it and open that to what are the knowledges or what are the biases or what are the ways of thinking systemically that are allowing this problem to manifest on a personal level. And then that allows not just for like that not to open up, but also to use that energy towards maybe healing something on a systems level or viewing something on a systems level. Mm -hmm. The cards have really interesting themes, which are like, which are quite different from the traditional tarot, such as instinct and myth sync foreplay uh, how did you select these things so almost every step of the process was kind of intuitive and not planned in advance mm -hmm. so i'll just sort of walk through a little bit that this whole project started with a collage process and then at the same time that i was collaging i was also in a master's uh, program in fine art and i knew that eventually i was going to have to write like a 80 page academic thesis paper that would somehow explain the art that I was working on. 
And I was thinking, well, you know, even that is almost like a fetishistic, aestheticized format of this academic writing, which serves its purpose in many ways. But um, I thought, what if I could just use my academic thesis as the guidebook for the collage deck that I was forming? And then so what happened was I put all my collages on a wall when I finished making them. And then as I was researching, <clears throat> instead of just like, instead of forming a linear argument, I was kind of forming like an overarching ethos. And then I would just take ideas that sparked something from books or poetry that I was writing, and I would connect them to different images. So then I had this whole wall of images as connected to concepts. And my writing process looked like, you know, sitting with that wall and seeing which image has collected enough ideas and feelings and yeah, possibilities within it that I can now write a text in relation to it. And then the title was a way of wrapping all those things together. So they're almost like titles of the individual works, but they're also almost like nodes within the ethos of the, the project itself. Nice. Well, I wanted to discuss also the medium you use, which is collage. Why did you start working with, with that discipline, collage making? So I really see collage as a divinatory practice. I actually also just talking about experimental workshops. I just recently taught a workshop called Collage as Divination. Mm. So because I work a lot in video and film and because I was also in an academic context for a while, I felt that there was this tension that I had to do too much pre-planning for work and I almost had to justify a work's existence before it even was created. So collage for me started as like a flow state practice, like almost no preconceived notions can exist in that space. And the only sort of rules that I follow in my practice is just I'm cutting up images based on what uh, pops out to me, what presents itself to me. And then I have all of these fragments and I'm rearranging them, rearranging them until aesthetically some combination of things just feels right. And it's not like I know on a conceptual level what it's saying, but I know like, oh, a new meaning is being made here. So my idea was, you know, what collage does in general in its essence is cutting things up and rearranging them so that the images still retain their own power, but they can't, they resist classification. They resist the possibility of being cleanly understood. I want to ask a question now, which relates to maybe to what you were saying about National Geographic, because you consistently, in the descriptions, consistently use he, him pronouns when talking about the human being. For example, the human being destroys himself and his planet by clinging to his narcissistic systems of classification and uh, he will be forever dissatisfied in his lifelong pursuit of domination and exclusion for this is all that his history has left for him why do you use he him pronouns do you see the yeah so it's funny because i often receive like critique about that <laughs> so it's like one of the things that people bring up a lot but in its most basic sense that was kind of an ode to the ways in which for so long, even until recently, we've used he, him pronouns when speaking of humanity as a whole. So it's saying like, if we're talking about anthropogenic climate change uh, in this opening manifesto text about what's wrong with the human, then I'll continue to use those he, him pronouns because those were the only people that were granted full subjecthood 
in the trajectory of like the creation of these problems in the first place. So it's almost like it's not saying that men are the cause of climate change, but it's saying that this patriarchal paradigm and this singular notion of what it means to be human uh, has to do with the patriarchy. And then I propose like the radical becoming identity is a has they them pronouns. And that's not just to be inclusive of trans identity, but it's also to emphasize like plurality and collectivity as a way of being rather than the singular he, him, or even she, her. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think also in a larger sense that the violence against women's bodies and violence against the body of the planet have always been inextricably linked. And that patriarchy, like to sustain its power, has relied on denying full subjectivity to women and to people of color and to the earth. So, and that denial of subjectivity allows for the continuous extraction from and exploitation of and domination over those groups. So I recently was reading it with third graders because there's this holiday coming up in the Jewish tradition that's like the new year for the trees. And this book is like a famous book where basically this young boy is very good friends with the tree and he plays with it. And as he gets older, he keeps taking more and more resources from the tree. And it's clear that he's like very disenchanted with his life. And eventually he basically kills the tree and reduces it to just a stump because he wants to make a house and he wants to make a boat. And he's always trying to escape himself. But the weird thing that I noticed coming back to that story is that it's it's sexed and gendered. The tree is a woman and the boy is obviously a man. Um, but I think that there is a lot of potency to that in just the sense of the, the alignment between exploitation of women and the alignment between exploitation of the earth, both like symbolically, practically, ideologically, all of these things. Um, and there's a lot of eco-feminist activists that are talking about this. And um, I think cool for the topic of this podcast is this activist eco, she's an eco-feminist activist, Vandana Shiva. And she talks about how the two centuries of the scientific revolution were concurrent with two centuries of the witch hunts. So on one hand, we had a lineage of white men deciding, you know, what objective truth is based on linear logic, rationality, reason, and also reducing the world into its component parts. So no longer seeing it as like a holistic living system. And then at the same time, we have a lineage of white men killing off the knowledges of the healers and the midwives and the herbalists of many communities around the world. So I think that we're all participating in this kind of patriarchal idea of what an objective truth is without remembering that, you know, that the purity of objectivity relied on violently excluding all these other ways of thinking about the world. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be discussing this in reading groups for this project. And, and we discussed it also during our last podcast interview, ways of looking at women healing and using herbs and no having a lot of knowledge, which was in modern terms, really uh, scientific and how science was developed in the same time, which wasn't scientific at all. And mm-hmm choosing to kill off the, well, like you said, the more holistic view on on the world and on medicine and, and science. It seems to be like the root of our problems now. Yeah. And even like in my own life, it's been like one time, you can keep this or not, or not <laughs> but I had a problem of recurring UTIs 
And I went to a doctor and a, a male doctor basically said that I could either take antibiotics for three months or I could take antibiotics every time I have sex with someone. And that were my two options. And I realized like looking into it that urology is a male dominated field. There's almost no women urologists. So there's so little information about these kinds of very common problems and that, that women have. And then I, or that are common to wombs. And I then just went on my own process of finding which herbs could heal it. And now I know which herbs cure UTIs and I've been trying to spread the word <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> so it's just really simple things like that, where it still affects, you know, our lives and the ways we think about even our own bodies because of the, this one particular idea of how to, how to see ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, re it's really well, an interesting topic. Seems like someone is calling. You are now in witchcraft made science. What is your inquiry? Well, thank you so much for picking up. Uh, in fact, I have a question and a request, if that's okay. First is the question, uh, you were talking a lot about all these creational myths, about the plurality of how creatures are made. And I was just wondering, what are you personally made of? What am I made of? I see myself as the earth, I think. I mean, just like a plant, the plant that's next to you, or like, you know, where else did our bodies come from? I just see myself as kind of just like a material being that somehow is able to think and know itself. I think that connecting with our own bodies is a conduit for connecting with the earth. So the separation we have between mind and body makes it seem ridiculous that we're actually part of the earth. But if we connect deep into our own bodies, we realize that it's just this like clean continuum, you know, between those things. I actually have a performance that touches upon this. So one time I had a very vivid dream that I was in a pool of mud and I was chanting this chant over and over again until a crocodile emerged from the mud. And then it was a really empowering dream. And then in real life, I was on a hike shortly after that dream and I saw a big puddle of mud in Utah. This is where it happened. And, and I decided that I wanted to make that dream real. So I spent the next few hours like creating a life-size crocodile out of the mud. And the title of the work is I made a crocodile out of mud and mud made me out of crocodile. So it's like this idea of this continuous cyclical creation from the mud that encompasses all of evolution, but also um, this sense of like, we don't know where something starts or ends. Okay, so thank you so much for your answer. As for the request, I was wondering if it's possible to have a phone or an online phone tarot reading with me. Are you up for it? I'm totally up for it, yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. It's If you feel like you could do it now, I, I definitely could. I just need to find my cards, but what do you what do you guys think? Yeah, do you think it's possible to do it like this online or oh yeah, I do it online a lot. Oh, I mean good. I have a whole online persona. <laughs> oh great. Okay, so double checking, this is not a divination in the sense of oh when I'm gonna meet the love of my life. It's more about the mysteries of the now, right? Yeah, it says here in the booklet, it can mm -hmm. be helpful to ask questions using words like what, how, and why in a way that acknowledges your own agency to stimul stimulate a mutation 
within the matrix of a given situation. Oh my, I'm kind of nervous now. Well, right now I find myself in a very important transition period. Just moved to the capital of the country for a new job. I will be starting into new. In, I will be starting in two weeks, living in a new apartment. A lot of insecurities, you know. Not about the future. I'm excited about it. It's not about the present. It's about this new job I got. You know, it's gonna be quite demanding. So I was wondering, what can I do to embrace and perform? properly in this adventure. Okay. So um, I do it because you can't physically pick a card. Just say a number between 1 and 32. Mm, 26. Okay. Here's your card. So this card is called Nervous Fluid. And I'll just explain briefly what it looks like. It's a human brain inside of a kind of translucent translucent turquoise jellyfish and the background is like a dark ocean with other jellyfish swimming around in it. So this card is kind of about the ways in which we think that our consciousness is contained within our own brain, but really that we're all kind of interconnected in this like electric ecosystem of thoughts and actions and ways of being in the world. So I think maybe this card can be emphasizing the interrelational aspect of this job that you're about to enter into. That you might be worried that, oh, I'm not enough or I don't know how I'm gonna perform in this job, but it might be just emphasizing you're about to enter into like a really intense interpersonal relationship with this other person. And that I think the card might be empowering that your sense of empathy alone is enough for you to handle the position itself. Like maybe somebody could come at it with extreme organizational skills or like have a huge handle on scheduling and being on time and punctuality. But it could be that, you know, you were chosen as the right person for this job by a person who sensed that you would be able to be on the other side of this two-way dynamic that's gonna power this person's career and all the things that they're trying to achieve in life. So and that you will be reciprocally engaged in that dynamic too, through your ability to like merge that person's own desires with your own desires and for them to be able to see what you need in that position too. Oh, wow. That's really marvelous. The power of empathy, huh? Eh? Thank you so much for the reading. Is that, um, do, you, do you feel like you connect well with this person that you're gonna be working with? Oh yeah, most definitely. I asked for the job the evening I met her after she gave a little workshop. Something clicked. Great. Yeah, so I think the card is just saying trust in that and everything else will come. And if you have that really strong foundation plus all of your skills and everything that you're bringing to the table, then even anything that you might be doing wrong or that there's a learning curve for that, that will be able to be clearly expressed within the dynamic and you'll be able to grow to meet all of that person's needs, so. Yeah, good luck. Congratulations. I guess, you know. Uh, thank you so much. This is amazing. Thank you. Deeply. That was fun. Thank you for calling to Witchcraft Made Science. Here we truly enjoy talking to all our witchy apprentices. Now back to the show. During a previous podcast interview, uh, we spoke about the relationship between magic and science. Mm -hmm. And how mysteries unknown to human can be magic or science. And 
how they don't necessarily negate each other. And in, in the guidebook to your card deck, you write about how the human being has lost his taste for the great mystery. And that among other things, the human being rejects myth, magic, and monsters. What are your definitions of, of mystery, myth, myth, magic, and monsters? I basically see the mystery as this huge, gigantic question mark that underlies everything that we do. So I think science is like a really valid framework for looking at the world, but not when it rejects all other ways of seeing or takes itself as an absolute. Because even say, we might know how our brain works according to their little parts that make them up under a microscope, but we still have no idea what consciousness is or how it works or why it exists. Or I just think that there's so many huge mysteries that can power our existence in the world, like that we don't know what happens after death or we don't know what exists outside our solar system. And I think that there comes this kind of arrogance with science that if it can't be proven by an empirical framework, then it doesn't exist. But that doesn't leave space for these huge uh, unknown unknowns that can give us a sense of curiosity that we can live with and work with as we're existing in the world. Kind of related to this, I was wondering if and how you relate to origins and effect of the climate crisis and science of climate science and the rejection of magic also because of climate deniers don't, who don't want to look at scientific answers or they, they don't believe the science. While on the other hand, rejecting the mystery, like you said, uh, kind of throws us in a kind of void of yeah, so it's definitely complicated because there's science deniers that are then on the side of uh, not believing in climate change. So that's a great example of why science as a framework is still really useful and resourceful for allowing many people to have this sense of a truth that everybody can agree upon within which we can like make active decisions about how to act in the world. But for example, then, like I think the clearest example practically is there's a lot of researchers or scientists that are trying to solve climate change or mitigate climate change by things like geoengineering, which I see as just a continuation of this dominator logic of how to interact with the earth. Like, oh, we could just stimulate volcanoes or, you know, whatever other kinds of ways that don't actually deal with the underlying problems causing the, this issue in the first place. Whereas if we look at the magical side of things, or if we you know, look at maybe indigenous ways of living in a more ecologically viable way, then we might be able to change the ways in which we um, act in the world. And, you know, it's it's dangerous because it then it can also be exploitative or it could also be not done in a careful way. But I think we can use the scientific framework in, in relation to these like knowledges that incorporate myth and mystery and monsters and magic to just even expand the kinds of questions that we can ask. There's a really good book called All We Can Save. All these women identifying climate activists. So like it's a, it's a collection of essays. And there's an essay by someone named Sherry Mitchell, where she talks about using indigenous ways of knowing as an approach to mitigating the climate crisis. And it's really good talking about all of these things on a systemic level. Oh, good. I'll look it up. A final question for you. I see radical becoming in the ongoing now as, as a ritual with cards, which you also kind of said in the beginning of our interview. To get more insight 
of yourself and the world around you. But also some descriptions of the cards read like spells themselves. When I read something like, I'm satisfied when a male doctor showcases inadequacy, giving me license to a second opinion from the sun which I really like. This is written in the description of the diagnostic card. Uh, it reminds me of women healers and midwives, which we also discussed just now, who were burned at the stake as witches for practicing medicine and support during childbirth. So I was wondering what your ideas of the witch and if and how she comes forward in your work and maybe as a relate. So I see both the witch and the goddess as you know, archetypes, and we can channel them as we need them in our particular moment. Like right now, maybe the witch is is occupying a certain space that's useful for a lot of people. So for me, I see the witch as defined by a kind of wildness, a kind of deviance from the norms, like what's expected of women in the world. I feel like I channel the witch when I'm feeling very like, how can I, like strategic or, ooh, that's a good idea. Like that's a sneaky way of <laughs> saying what I want to say. Um, so I think that this archetype is also defined by the violence that it has faced. So it's kind of like, oh, well, I'm coming back around now and just wait what I, what I have in store. I also think about it as like, yeah, very hands-on uh, connection with nature, kind of alliance that's secret like oh like me talking to a tree again <laughs> what does a tree have to say and also I think about it in connection with group ritual like when I'm organizing group events or leading something in a group I I think about the witch and that that figure how she occupies space and how collectivity and the coven is a really really important part of the tradition of witchcraft so I think my craftiness and my sense of like one-upping the patriarchy <laughs> comes from my inner my inner witch and, and then the goddess I would say first of all the goddess for me is like the underbelly of centuries of Abrahamic faiths only having like one male god as an image of divinity so I think that's a huge huge problem that we that so many people are still raised with is this idea of divinity as a man which then allows for this archetypal trajectory of then okay well then the the priest is also the all-powerful. Then the father is also the all-powerful. Then the male CEO is also the all-powerful because they're all in this image of one masculine godlike figure. So the goddess on one level for me is just opening up this possibility of a feminine divinity um, or a feminine creator or a feminine all-powerful energy. Um, and she really appears in my work a lot. Like I think a lot of my work touches into this kind of creaturely, but also cosmic being or force. It's like a, a woman that's aligned with reptiles and with nature and she comes out of the mud, but she's also this all powerful thing that swallows everything <laughs> around her and then births those things again. So yeah, I think she, she's more present in the imagery that I evoke in my work to try and, to try and get at what is this divine feminine that's wild and earthly outside of this patriarchal god like pure figure um and then the witch is more the crafty material practice side of how, how i work oh that's nice it's also 
really nice use of archetypes because first I was thinking the witch as a stereotype is also really harmful and the goddess as a stereotype can also be really harmful. But these archetypes are really empowering, changing the ideas of those stereotypes based in patriarchy, I think. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This was yeah, so thought so too. Thank you. And thanks to all for listening to Witchcraft Made Science.